And if you are not one of the young, energetic beings sprinting to the back, you can open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 29. Let me just sort of tell you what we're going to be doing before we, uh, before we read and go into uh, the passage. The, the section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at is 29.1 through 30.24. 29.1 through 30.24. We're not going to read all of that, but that's the, the section that we're taking this morning. And we're taking this... And wanting to use this passage of Scripture, this episode or period in Jacob's life, to be reminded of the truth that God makes all things, all things, work for our good. So just in the course of the reading, read with me or follow along with me as I read 29.1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It's well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We can't until all the flocks are gathered, and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It's better I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. And all the ladies sigh. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, It's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so, and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. 
Father, whether we are the ones sinning or are the ones who are sinned against, may we continue to fix our eyes upon you for grace. May we know for certain that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more because of the favor that is ours in Jesus Christ, who has suffered and paid the full price for the penalty of our sin so that we can know for certain that we owe you no debt, that there is nothing lacking, and that even when we encounter hardship and difficulties, you bring it our way only to refine us and to make us more like Jesus. Thank you for your word in this time that we have, and it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. God makes all things work for our good. Two points, if you uh, are a note-taking person or if you're taking mental notes, the way that this breaks down, we read the passage that essentially covers the first point that we're going to make, and then we're going to look briefly at what happens uh, after Jacob ends up with, not with one wife, but with two wives, and children are born to him, but we're going to break it down this way. Uh, number one, God blesses his people through discipline. God blesses his people through discipline. And number two, God blesses his people in chaos and misery. That is to say, it's not the chaos and misery that is a blessing, but that he blesses us even while we're in chaos and misery. Do you, you get that? Okay. So God blesses his people through discipline, and he blesses his people even in chaos and misery. Last week in chapter 28, uh, Jacob is on the run trying to save his own life because after tricking his father into pronouncing the firstborn blessing on him, his older brother Esau has sworn that he will take revenge on Jacob, that he's going to kill him. And so Rachel tells Jacob that he needs to flee, that he needs to go to where the extended family is. He needs to find a wife there. And hopefully that after a period, Esau's anger will subside and he'll be able to come back to the promised land and pick back up, resume life as normal. On the way, Jacob stops at a place called Luz. And in the process of a vision that he receives from the Lord, he gets the unmistakable assurance that no matter where he goes or what he does, that God is going to be with him. God's going to be with him wherever he goes. God's presence with Jacob is not just limited to the promised land, but when Jacob crosses the river, so to speak, and begins to move outside of the promised land, God will be just as much with Jacob then as he is now. And that because God is with Jacob, God will keep him and protect him and will see to it that all of the blessings, all of the promises that he has made will be fulfilled. So Jacob wakes up after having this vision in 28. He recognizes that something special has happened. He makes a sort of commitment to the Lord. If you're going to do all this for me and you actually make good on it, I'm going to walk and serve you. And then we come to 29.1. And what I want to do right from the outset is draw your attention to the very first verse, to two unusual expressions that are made in the introduction to this new phase of Jacob's life. 29.1, the first phrase is, Jacob went on his journey. Now, some of you may have a marginal reading or a little footnote that tells you that the, the more literal or wooden translation of this Hebrew phrase is, then Jacob picked up his feet and journeyed to the land of the east. This is the only place in the Old Testament where you have this expression of someone picking up their feet rather than the Old Testament just saying, or rather than the author just saying, he walked or he traveled or he went. And the question is, what in the world is the author doing with this odd expression, then Jacob lifted his feet and journeyed to the land of the east. Most 
commentators, if they comment on this, think that this is saying something about the mindset or the way in which Jacob continues on his travel. In other words, Jacob has just had a vision from the Lord. He wakes up in the next morning, sets up his memorial, sets up his altar, whatever. When it comes time for Jacob to leave and to continue on going to his mother's extended family, he does so lifting, picking his feet up. We would say something like he had a spring in his step. Right? We encourage people, if, you, if you're in athletics or sports, we, say, we use expressions like pick it up. Right? Move. That seems to be maybe what's going on here with Jacob. That in light of the assurances that he's received from the Lord, Jacob resumes this journey with a certain air of confidence and assurance and enthusiasm even about what God is going to do for him. So the the journey that Jacob starts out of fear, out of threat, out of danger, now has been dramatically transformed. Jacob continues his journey now after his encounter with the Lord, almost in eager anticipation to see what it is that the Lord is going to do for him when he reaches his destination and when he finds his mother's family. The Lord is going to do great things. He just told me he's never going to leave me. He's going to keep me. He's going to bless me richly. Not one thing that he has promised is going to fail. And then he's going to bring me back to this land. Oh, this is going to be good. I can't wait. That's the first expression. The second expression in verse 1 is the second half, which says that he came to the land of the sons of the east. Now, the author could have very easily said he came to... Paddan Aram, or he came to Haran. But he doesn't use the place name, he uses just a general direction. He came to the land of the east, even though we know already where it is that Jacob is going. Why does he do that? Well, one of the interesting things, one of the interesting patterns in Genesis is that almost every time someone is said to move east, It's always within a setting of judgment or danger or alienation. So all the way back in Genesis 3 and 4, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they are expelled eastward. God places his cherub on the east side of the garden, making sure that they do not get back in. They're being pushed eastward. When Cain murders Abel, and has to bear the punishment or the consequences of his sin, he is said to leave the presence of the Lord and travels east before he settles down. When Abraham and Lot part ways in Genesis chapter 13, we're told that Lot moves east and settles in the vicinity of Sodom. And even before that, I did this out of order, sorry. Chapter 11, before the episode of the Tower of Babel, we're told that the people who try to build the tower travel eastward before they settle in the land of Shinar and begin to build the temple. In all of those instances, when someone is is moving east, it's because something bad has happened or something bad is about to happen. So do you see the tension that, that starts off right in the first verse? On the one hand, Jacob is picking his feet up, presumably enthusiastic about the guarantee that God is going to meet his travel, meet his effort with every kind of blessing and success. On the other hand, the author tells us, yes, but he's picking up his feet and he's moving east. That's ominous. That's foreboding. So which is going to win out? Is Jacob going to find that he has good reason to have pep in his step? Or is he going to find that what he anticipates does not come to fruition and that rather than a time of blessing, he's suffering through a time of exile and alienation? So you track on with the story. 
And initially, things seem to go pretty well. He reaches his destination, and it just so happens that he arrives at the very place, at the very time that his future bride-to-be is coming out with a herd of sheep to water them. We would say that's not a coincidence. And in fact, if you read what Jacob does, when Jacob goes down and when he moves the large stone on his own, and he waters the flock, you you start to hear and see that there's a lot of similarity between what Jacob is doing in his interaction with Rachel and what Abraham's servant did in his interaction with Rebekah. Right? They they both meet the future bride-to-be at a well. There's There's a lot of watering that's involved in the story. There's a discovery that, lo and behold, this woman is part of the family that I'm trying to find. And Rebecca and Rachel, when they hear about who this person is, they go run off and they tell their family, right? All of these things. So the pattern is fitting what we saw earlier in the Abraham narrative when Abraham is trying to secure a wife for Isaac. These same things are starting to play out with Jacob. And we say, ah, providence is smiling on Jacob. Isn't God good? And then, smiling providence starts to turn a little dark. We find out as we read that Jacob is staying with Laban, with his mother's family, for a period of a month before Laban comes and says, Hey, probably should give you something for all the work that you're doing for me. In other words, Jacob has been working for Laban free of charge for a month without Laban even acknowledging what he's doing. Jacob doesn't have anything. He doesn't have any leverage. He doesn't have any way to win any kind of bartering. So what Jacob goes into is he makes a pitch to Laban and he says, how about if you're going to pay me for my work, What if we say, I'll work free of charge, pro bono, for seven years, as long as you give me Rachel for a wife? Seven years of unpaid labor to get a wife. And then, when the seven years are up, Jacob has to go to Laban and say, hey, Remember the deal we made? Give me my wife. And Laban goes and he makes a big party. And then in probably the climax of this episode, Jacob the deceiver is deceived himself. Remember Jacob, the one who took advantage of his blind old father, who presented himself as someone that he was not? Jacob then has the tables turned on him in the dark, unable to see the woman who is given to him, who's brought into his tent. He takes Leah and not Rachel. Laban passes off one daughter for another daughter. And now, after working seven years unpaid, presumably for Rachel, what does Jacob do? He's already consummated the the marriage to Leah. He can't can't trade her in. Laban says, well, I, I know what we can do. How about another seven years unpaid labor? If you commit to another seven years of unpaid labor, I'll give you Rachel. You can have both of them. Fourteen years of unpaid labor. Where is God in all this? Where is God when Jacob is being taken advantage of? Where is God when Jacob is about to be tricked and deceived? Why doesn't God call out to Jacob and say, Jacob, don't go in that tent. That ain't her. 
Why does God let him walk blindly into that situation? Well, one answer would be that God is intending for Jacob to reap what he sows. There's a certain poetic justice that seems to happen here, that in the same way that Jacob sinned against his father and his family, he is now being sinned against. The tables are being turned on him. I don't think there, I think there's little doubt that the author has in mind that at least in this twist or turn of events that there is some measure of God's discipline that is being brought to bear on Jacob for his sin. One of the things that we ought to consider then when we look at this is to be mindful of the fact that even though God remains steadfastly committed to the good of His people, He will not turn a blind eye to their sin. And because He remains steadfast in His union and relationship and covenant with them, There is a a strange sort of assurance that ought to come to God's people to say, even when God must deal with me according to my sins, I know that He does it for my good and not because He is getting ready to cast me aside. It's tough love. He disciplines us for our good. Hebrews tells us, so that we would share in His righteousness. But the other part of this is to recognize that simply because we tend to associate God's presence and God's providential care with sunshine and flowers and bright skies and clear sailing, When we wake up and find ourselves in the midst of a storm, when we find ourselves not on a mountaintop but in a valley, we do not need to think that God is no longer with us or that He is not even in the midst of the valley, even in the midst of the darkness, that He has stopped working for our good. Jacob has the assurance from chapter 28 that no matter where he goes or what he encounters, that God will remain with him and that God is keeping him safe in his covenant relationship. God does not speak to Jacob in chapter 29. God is not intervening to prevent this hardship, hardship, this testing, this discipline from coming Jacob's way. But if the promise of God means anything from chapter 28, we cannot conclude that God has taken His hands off of Jacob because of the way that Laban is taking advantage of him. We have to say, somehow, in some way, although Laban's mistreatment and abuse of Jacob is in no way justified, Nevertheless, God is still working for Jacob. This is one of the hardest lessons to learn in the Christian life. When do you know that God is leading you and directing you and guiding you and empowering you? When do you know that that's happening? You know that God is doing that when you're successful. You know that God is doing that, at least so you assume, when your plans fall into place. You know that God is for you, is with you, when life is good and smooth and comfortable. But what about when an unexpected death comes? 
What happens when a marriage falls apart? What happens if you lose a child? What happens if you lose a job? What happens if you're sinned against? What if someone takes advantage of you in a horrific way? Then what? Is God for you then? He better be. Do you know that God is for you even when you're going through dark and troubled times? Do you know that God is for you even when He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death? That's what Jacob has to cling to. Whether or not he is, who knows? We don't know what's going on in Jacob's mind and heart right now. But it's very obvious that while God is leading and ordering every step that Jacob takes, He is still nonetheless ordering Jacob's steps to come not just to Rachel, but to Laban. God is the one who has brought Jacob to this time of discipline and testing and trial. But again, not because God is intending to destroy Jacob, or to abandon him. This has to be for his good. Hold your place here and go to Isaiah chapter 43. Listen to what God says to Israel, who is in a very similar, if not identical, situation to what Jacob is in, in chapter 29. At this particular point in time, Isaiah is writing, in light of the fact that because of Israel's sin, she is going to be removed from the promised land, she is going to be exiled to the east for a time of discipline. And yet listen to what the Lord says to His exiled people who are exiled because they are being disciplined. Isaiah 3 verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. you catch that? He's not saying that Israel will not have to pass through the waters. He's not saying that Israel will not have to pass through the fire. What he is saying is that when you pass through the water, when you pass through the fire, I will be as much with you then as what I was when I was with you in the promised land. It is not easy feeling like you are on the verge of drowning in life's sorrows. It is not easy when it seems and feels as if God has hidden Himself from you, when God is silent, when you are begging and pleading with God to see something, some sign of good. And God remains content just to simply say, I have promised that I will not leave you or forsake you. That promise was good yesterday, it's good today, and it is good for the duration of your life. Whether or not you hear me speak it in a fresh, new way or not, the, the truth remains, I have spoken, I have promised, I have said it. And so what we find out then as we go through the rest of Scripture 
is that whether God is disciplining His people because of their sin, He needs to correct them, or whether He's disciplining them as a form of training, it's formative, He's equipping them, that both in correction and in formation, everything that God brings our way is ultimately for our good, for our blessing and our greater joy. The epitome of this is in the life of Christ Himself. Christ is baptized in the Jordan River. He comes up out of the water. There's an audible voice from heaven that says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descending visibly on the Son. There is no way that you can interpret that event as anything other than the eternal pleasure of God resting on the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, right? And then what happens immediately after that declaration and that show of affirmation of pleasure and support? What happens? Jesus is impelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness where He is tempted and tested for 40 days and night with no food. Does the favor that the Father has for His Son, does it only cover Jesus when He's in the water? What happens when Jesus comes out of the water? Does He still have the Father's favor? What happens when Jesus goes out into the wilderness alone by Himself to have to face and deal with the onslaught of the enemy? Does He still have His Father's favor? What about when Jesus is hanging, suffering, miserable, humiliated on the cross? Does He still have His Father's favor? Yes. And because the favor of God is given by promise, because the favor of God is given as a gift of grace, there is no part of our lives for those of us who have been connected to Christ and who are able to call the Father our Father. There is no part of our life where we have to fear the possibility that God is no longer for us. Even when people oppose us, God is using their opposition to do something good for us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Pick up with me at verse 17. 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin from the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God disciplines and corrects His people as much today as He did with Jacob back in Genesis 29. but He disciplines us for our good to prepare us for greater blessings that lie ahead of us in the future. So Peter says a little bit later, skip ahead to chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered for how long? 
a little while. How long is a little while of suffering? Depends on what the measure is. Is a little while of suffering 14 years? Is a little while of suffering 20 or 25? A little while of suffering may in fact be most of your life because a little while of suffering is being compared, measured to eternal glory. How long is 70 or 80 years in comparison with endless ages? Would you say that 70 or 80 years constitutes a little while? After you have suffered for a little while, the one who called you to his eternal glory will give it to you After you have suffered for a little while, whether because of your sin or the sin of someone else, God will show His favor. You will suffer for a little while, but you won't do it on your own. And in fact, what we see going back to Genesis is that the suffering that Jacob encounters at the hands of Laban, because God is the one who has brought Jacob to this point, because this is God's work to purify, refine, and correct Jacob, everything that Laban does actually ends up working to the long-term advantage of Jacob. Now, please don't misunderstand. It works to Jacob's long-term advantage because instead of one wife, he gets two wives. I'm not advocating that kind of blessing. Along with the two wives, he gets two maidservants who come along as gifts. And so there are four women who ultimately end up bearing children for Jacob. That's a mess. Nobody but nobody wants to be in Jacob's position as you continue to read through chapter 29 into chapter 30. But here's the point. We're going to turn there in a minute, and we're going to look at the mess that Jacob is in. But the point is simply this, that even with all of the messiness, all of the uncertainty, all of the opposition, and the underhanded dealings, There's coming a point in time when Jacob is going to make it through this period of his life, through the Laban years. He's going to leave Laban, and he's going to leave Laban overflowing with signs and evidence of God's blessing on his life. Not in spite of the persecution, precisely because of the persecution. You need to know and be confident of the fact that whether you are going through a time of discipline right now, whether it's for corrective measure because of sin, or whether it's to form you further into the image of Christ, that in the exact same moment that God is disciplining you, He is blessing you. Do not run from God's discipline He gives it to us for our good. So God blesses His people through discipline. Number two, God blesses His people even in the midst of chaos and misery. I'm not going to read all of this, the the second part of this passage. Let me just drop in on a couple places. Start with me in 2931. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. But Rachel, the one who was loved, was barren. 
Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah and she stopped bearing What a heartbreaking passage of Scripture. Here's this woman who wants to have some sort of approval or affection from the husband that she was thrown to. She knows that she doesn't have it, and every time she gives birth to another child, she thinks, maybe now he'll think I'm something. Do you hear that pain Do you hear that sorrow? Do you hear that dysfunction? Meanwhile, the woman that Jacob does love is barren. She doesn't have any children. So you drop in on on Rachel and Jacob in chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. How in the world do you live up to that? Right? Give me children or I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And so Rachel says, here, take my servant. If she gets pregnant, we'll count her kid as my kid. And then you read a little bit later on, and the women begin to get into a bartering match. Who's going to get Jacob tonight? Who's going to get him the next night? This is God's chosen man, Jacob, and his family. You want this for your life? And then we get to verse 22, 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. This is not a picture-perfect family. This is not a family that's living in harmony with one another that is living at peace with one another. But what is happening through all of this chaos and turmoil? Has God taken a vacation? Has He gone away? Has He left Jacob to fend for himself with two wives and two other women? No. In spite of the mess, in spite of the chaos, What we're to understand is that God is working through the chaos, through the turmoil, through all of the hurt, through all of the sorrow. God is working through these circumstances, and He is building up His family, His people. He is adding to their number. He is filling them out. Again, not in such a way that this carnage and relational dysfunction is to be excused or is to be imitated Not in any way, but simply to say, even when life is at its messiest, God is still bringing about good things. I know we don't always see that. I know it's not always easy as a parent to look at any one of your children and to say, this, this is God's favor. When everything that you can do is trying to keep your hands restrained because they're driving you nuts. Or your spouse, who has got on that last fraying nerve and snapped it in two. Or when nothing seems to go right at work or at school. 
when your plans and your hopes and your dreams for your career or for where life was going to take you, when all of that is falling flat, I know it's not easy. I know it's not likely that you look at that and you instinctively think God is doing good things, but He is. The difficulty is that we are not always able to see and to know what that good thing is in the moment. He calls us to trust Him. And He calls us to say, even though you may not know what I'm doing right now, even though you may not understand the loss or the suffering or the despair or the crumbling of dreams, even though you don't understand what that is about, know for certain that this is being done for your reward, for your ultimate blessing. Turn one more time to 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8. This was the section that we read earlier in the service. If we can know for certain that no matter what we're encountering in life, God is working His blessing out in small ways, in big ways, in seen and unseen ways, what does that do? How does that shape the way that we live life together. That someone is threatening to take from me what is going to contribute to my happiness and my fulfillment. And because I feel like my happiness or my fulfillment is being threatened, I lash out or I attack or I push back. I fight, I scratch, I claw, I cling. There's only one blessing out there, and i got to make sure that I get it. But the more convinced that God's people become that in every situation He is working all things for our good, the more freedom we have to live with each other peaceably and with love and with grace, because you are not my competition for God's blessing. I am not your competition for God's blessing. My spouse or my employer or my kids or my relatives, they are not going to keep me from getting God's blessing. That blessing is coming to me regardless because God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted. So what should God's people look like being utterly convinced that in any and every situation, no matter who the characters are, no matter who the actors are, what should they look like? And Peter tells us. He's writing to a group of people who are suffering who are experiencing pressure, and he says, this is the way that you ought to live, knowing that all of this ultimately comes from the hand of God, that all of this is working out to your advantage. He says in 1 Peter 3, 8, so to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I think what Peter is trying to say is that when God's people are convinced that all things belong to them, that their reward is secure in Christ, they become the most generous life-giving, sharing people that the world has ever seen. Because they know that no one can take what God is going to give them and that they cannot outgive any blessing that God would first give to them. Their blessing comes from an eternal source, God Himself. 
every single day that God gives something to you, He has not in any way, it, it boggles the mind, God never diminishes in any way. He is always maximally full of joy and pleasure and blessing and kindness. He will pour His grace out on us infinitely in the ages to come, and He will never reach a point where He starts to run low. If that's the line of blessing that you and I are tapped into, how can we not be overflowing with goodness and kindness to other people? The Laban in your life does not threaten your blessing. The Rachel or the Leah are not your competition for God's blessing. God gives that to you freely because He has given you all things in Jesus Christ. So as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of the fact that every time we come and we take just a little taste of the bread and a little taste of the juice, that we're reminded day by day, week after week, year after year, God provides and sustains His people by His grace. And we're reminded of the fact that what we taste in part right now will one day give way to a full feast of delight and joy in the age to come. Men, if you are going to help distribute the elements, would you come forward, please? As the elements are distributed, you can just hold them in place and we will partake together. Back again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Peter says this, 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When we share in the Lord's Supper together, one of the things that we are reminded of is that the bread that represents the body of Christ, the juice, the cup that represents his blood poured out for us, that that was suffering to the nth degree, suffering that we cannot imagine, suffering that was undeserved as far as Christ was concerned. Jacob will suffer the consequences of his sin. We will suffer the consequences of our sin and our error as we make life more complicated, more painful, more grievous than what it needs to be. Christ went to the cross not suffering because of anything that he had done, but suffering because of what we did. And the dramatic message that we see on the cross is that even in the greatest act of injustice, the most undeserved form of suffering, that in the very depths of depravity, God did his greatest, most miraculous work. He made sinners like you and me his sons and daughters. If God can take the suffering of his son and by design use it to accomplish infinite reward, how much more certain can you and I be that the lesser sufferings that we encounter in this life will also work to our eternal reward as well? So if you'll take the wafer, the bread, and remember that Christ was broken so that you could have the hope of being made whole, take and eat. And if you would take the cup and remember that Christ poured out his life in full so that you could have life and have it abundantly. Take and drink. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we praise you that in your wisdom and in your might, you have caused all the suffering of this life to accomplish joy and reward and glory in the end. Not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Thank you that we have that guarantee as your people, that you are eternally for us and not against us. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this time that we've had. Would you continue to cause us to see everything as coming from your hand such that we are convinced that you work all things together for our good. And it's in the name of our risen Savior that we ask this. Amen. Before we close out with a song, I'm going to ask Banks to come up and make an announcement for us. I'll be standing at the door at the conclusion of the service. Uh, if you are here in this service, sorry, Banks, I brought you up and then continued to talk. If you are here in this service and you do not know for certain what it means to be united to Christ in such a way that you know that God has nothing but favor and blessing for you because your sins have been forgiven, I'll be at the door, but I'm willing to stick around and talk with anyone who has any questions or who has anything that they need to get straight with the Lord so that you can know for certain that God is for you and not against you.
Go ahead, Max. Uh, I'd just like to thank each of you for your participation in this process. It was, uh, to me, an exciting, fair, transparent process, one the best one I've seen go through uh, as we continue to grow and learn how to do this. I'd like to tell you excitedly that uh, JT has been affirmed by 98% of the body. We're very excited about this, so let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your love for us, your sacrifice for us. Father, we thank you for working in the heart of JT and Carla, that you have called them here. This, for this time and this place, Father, I ask that you would uh, prepare their hearts as for ministry here. Thank you for this body, Father, that I pray that we would receive them with a spirit of love and uh, just uh, acceptance and that they would feel your Holy Spirit here working among us. Father, uh, we just thank you for the body here. I thank you for each person here and their participation. Go with us now as we go forward and go out to a world that needs you so desperately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and rejoice. He's, God is so good. God is so Praise his name. I praise his name. I praise his name. I praise his name. He's so good to me. Amen. You're dismissed.